you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com, thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we certainly appreciate you guys tuning in. Who knew? We'd always have another great author and guest on the show today, and I think this gentleman is going to amaze you and blow your mind. He's going to blow your mind. Jason, I'm really putting some onus on you to yeah. putting the pressure on you. A lot of uh, so we'll be talking to him in one second here. But first, refer the show to your family, friends, relatives. Remember, the Chris Voss Show is the family that loves you but doesn't judge you, like all those other families that judge you really harshly, especially those family outings. We don't do that, which is really nice. Anyway, guys, be sure to go to uh, iTunes. Give the show a good reference. Uh, five stars if you would. Or, you know, give it six stars if you can find the six-star button. There you go. Go to all the groups of LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those TikTok, all those crazy places the kids are playing. Today we have an amazing author on the show. He's a multi-book author, Jason Kander. And he's on the show to talk to us about his new book, Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of Politics and PTSD just came out July 5th, 2022. It is hot off the presses. You definitely want to get a chance to read it, find out more about it, and everything that he is doing. He's kind of had an amazing career. He's a former Army captain who served in Afghanistan, was the first millennial ever elected to a statewide office. He is the president of a national expansion at Veterans Community Project, a nonprofit organization, and host a Majority 54 podcast, a popular political podcast that they do. Jason's first book, Outside the Wire, was a New York Times bestseller. He lives in Kansas City with his family and all that good stuff. Welcome to the show. Jason, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to have you. And give us your .coms or places where people can go find out more about you on those interwebs. Oh, sure. Thanks. So jasoncander.com is my website, K-A-N-D-E-R is how you spell Kander. And then on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Jason Kander. So nothing particularly terribly creative. But you also, the organization where I'm the president of National Expansion is Veterans Community Project, and we can be found at vcp.org. That's awesome. So what motivated you want, want to write this book? Well, this is the book that I needed 14 years ago when I came home from Afghanistan, but it, mm -hmm. it didn't exist. So I finally decided to write it. It is a book about my experience uh, pretty well running for president while I had a secret undiagnosed uh, untreated psychological disorder, PTSD, that I just refused to acknowledge for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And then finally in 2018, I made a pretty you know, major news by dropping out of public life and deciding to go to the VA to get help for PTSD. Hmm. And then I went to, I went to therapy for several months and uh, now I'm in a phase of my life that I think of as post-traumatic growth. So I wanted people to know people who are, whether they're veterans or not, who've experienced trauma to, to know what I didn't know for a long time, which is that PTSD is not a terminal diagnosis that if you, if you treat it and you commit to the treatment, you can move forward with your life and, and you can, you can manage it and it won't slow you down, won't limit you. And you don't have to live that way. And I thought the best way to do that was to just tell my story. That's awesome. How many, how many returning soldiers suffer from PTSD from tours of duty? I think the official statistic they have is something like 8%, but I think mm -hmm. it's like 
way low. And, and I think that actually in the, in the population at large, it's like, I think that the rest of the population, I think it's actually above 8%, uh, you know, in my own non-clinical estimation, because, you know, we live in a traumatic time and you don't even have to, I mean, just like, you can get stuck in trauma in so many different ways. It could be a bad divorce or a car accident or losing a loved one. You know, there's a, a, a lot of different ways to have that happen. And that's really what I wanted to get across to people is that there, there is another way that you can, you can go through treatment and you can get better. And the truth is, is that a lot of people do every single year that we are surrounded by people who we just don't know it, but they've gone to trauma therapy and they're living their phase of post-traumatic growth. But that's not what we see portrayed when it comes to PTSD. Like, most movies uh, or, or shows about PTSD, they just show you a combat veteran who is robbing a bank after they do drugs and, and beat their spouse. And and that's what I refer to as PTSD porn. Mm -hmm. Like Rambo or something that, you know, oh, from Vietnam. You know, and I think you're right. A lot of people probably suffer from PTSD. You know, you did for 11 years and they yeah. just try and, can you hear me? I think it sounds pretty good. I think we're, I think we're pretty good. So let's see here. I was mentioning that I think you're right on PTSD. A lot of, a lot of people, you know, they just kind of suck it up. As men were told, you know, just suck it up, man up, deal with your issue, you know, whatever. And the, and so I think there are a lot more people misdiagnosed. Like you say, you, you suffered from 11 years before you finally took action. Hey folks, this is a quick break in from the show. Hey, be sure to check out my new courses at chrisvossleadershipinstitute.com. That's chrisvossleadershipinstitute.com forward slash courses, or you can just click the courses tab. You can see we've got new courses up for how to start a podcast and uh, video training that can get you up to date on everything we're doing. Of course, my speaking, my coaching and everything else, but be sure to check out the new course that we have up for starting your own podcast after 13 years, I'm kind of sharing some of the secrets of what I know. So be sure to check that out at chrisvossleadership.com forward slash courses. And so tell us a bit more about the story that you tell in there and, and the, the journey that you go on to diagnose your PTSD. Yeah. So I got back from Afghanistan in 2007 and my job over there, I was an army intelligence officer, which is to say my job was to go out and figure out which bad guys were pretending to be good guys in the Afghan government. And that meant I needed to often go out, just meet a translator, meet with people who were unsavory characters of questionable allegiance. And there was a, a you know, a reasonable chance of walking into a trap and getting kidnapped and killed. But, and so, you know, in that way, my job was dangerous and I was aware of the threat, but I never fired my weapon, the whole deployment. And so when I came home, I was like, well, I'm not a combat veteran. That was a story I told myself, right? Because mm -hmm. yeah, I'd been outside the wire most days. I had been in very dangerous situations, but to me, you know, combat was what I had seen on TV. And, and if it wasn't Black Hawk Down, it didn't count. Hey. And, and, you know, that was the story I told myself. And it's combined with the fact that the military teaches you that what you're doing is no big deal because that's the way they make it so that you can go and do these hard jobs, right? Mm -hmm. And these dangerous jobs. Cause if you believe that what you're doing is a big deal, it's a lot harder to do. Yeah. But when I came home, nobody had flipped that switch off. So I was very interested in public service. So while I was running for office, I was also telling myself, look, what I did was no big deal. So these symptoms I'm having, night terrors, hypervigilance, which is to say feeling like I'm in danger and my family's in danger all the time. Wow. Eventually like self-loathing and, and shame and guilt. Those things were mushing me forward in my career as a politician, but I was not acknowledging that they were connected to my service at all because I just didn't feel my service was worthy of that. 
Mm -hmm. And so I, I got elected to the state house from here in Kansas City. I got elected to the Missouri State House of Representatives, served a couple of terms, and I got elected as the Secretary of State of Missouri, became, as you mentioned, the first millennial in the country ever elected to a statewide office. And then I ran for the U.S. Senate in Missouri, which I'm a Democrat. Missouri is a very red state. And, and so I ran against an incumbent Republican who had actually been in elected office longer than I'd been alive. And on that day, Hillary Clinton, the Democratic candidate, lost Missouri by more than she lost Mississippi. But I came within three points of, of actually winning on the same day. Wow. So, so it was like I lost, but people seemed to look at it and go like, oh, this guy seems to know something about, you know, winning over these voters we need to win over. And, and so then I was sort of, you know, catapulted into the, into that stratosphere of like political celebrity on the democratic side. Mm -hmm. And then I started, I started a national organization at that time. And I started to think about running for president and like, you know, who wasn't at that point, everybody was when Trump was president. And, and then I sat down with president Obama and he did not discourage me from the idea. He was pretty encouraging. Mm -hmm. And so I started moving forward with that. And the whole time my symptoms of PTSD are getting worse, but I'm ignoring them. I'm just trying to outrun them, frankly. I felt like if I can keep moving, if I can keep, you know, giving these performances, they give me endorphin highs, then I'll be okay. And I, it was isolating me and separating me from my wife and from my son, who at that time was about four years old. And it just, you know, it was exhausting. And, mm -hmm. and so in about the summer of 2018, I decided that instead of going through with running for president, I had at that point been, I'd spent a lot of time in New Hampshire and Iowa. I'd been to 47 states to give speeches, but I was like, you know what? I, I'm, I can't do it. I, I don't have it in me right now. And mm -hmm. I thought I need to go home. And I, and I was like, I'm going to go home and get help at the VA and I'm going to run for mayor and become mayor of my hometown. Oh, there and, you go. Well, I was doing half of that. I didn't go to the VA. I didn't keep my promise to myself. But what I did do is I started running for mayor. And like, if you go from running for president to running for mayor, generally you're the front runner. And I was, it was the first time I was ever in a campaign that I was expected to win and it was going well, but I was getting progressively worse and worse and worse over that period of time until I started to have pretty persistent suicidal thoughts. Wow. And, and it came to a, it came to a point where I found myself in the, in the suicide hold, like suicide watch room at the Kansas city emergency VA. And it was time to pull the plug and get help. So that's what I did. I announced um, that I was dropping out of public life to go get help at the VA. And I went for weekly therapy at the VA for several months and it saved my life. I, I'm glad you, I'm glad you reached that point and, and, and didn't of course go the other way. You know, there, there reaches a point with the trauma where your mind turns literally against you and you just feel whipped. Like, yeah. like it's just. Like, it's just like, you're like, a, I don't know, a servant animal. You're just constantly whipped. And it, you, it, people don't understand it. I think a lot of times when people feel suicidal because they don't understand what hell it is to live in your own mind in that experience and, and to feel driven, just driven, beaten. Your mind is, it's just relentless. And the only way you reach a point where the only way that you can get away from it is to end it because then it will leave you alone. And you, you feel so, I don't know, you feel just attacked relentlessly 24 seven. It's, it's an, it's a nightmare. So I'm glad you, you, you were able to survive that and, and not end up on the other side. It's true. What is, what is, do you, do you want to shed some more light on what PTSD feels like so that maybe people in the audience that might be suffering it can have a sure. better understanding and maybe we'll turn on some light bulbs and people go, you know, I should probably go get help. Yeah. I think it feels a little different to everybody. I, one of the things I try to do in Invisible Storm, which 
you know, I'm grateful that it's done very well. People have really, I mean, it's on, it's, it's a New York Times bestseller right now and all the royalties go to my work at Veterans Community Project, but all my royalties publisher likes to keep their portion. But, but, you know, I, uh, I, so I try really hard to describe it in the book. And what I tried to do in the book is I didn't avail myself in, you know, in the, in the parts of the book where it's leading up to me going to therapy, which is most of the book. I didn't avail myself of the language I gained in therapy. I tried to use the language I would have only had at the time that, you know, of the moment in the story. So, you know, I described it as things like the world was a very dangerous place and that the people around me didn't understand how much danger there was. And it was important to be thwarting and preventing that danger all the time. And that that was very tiring. And that, you know, my night terrors were of such that I ended up also developing this sleep paralysis, which is like, I would have this, this bad dream that I was in Afghanistan or somewhere else. And I was about to be kidnapped and, and I'd, I'd wake up, but my body wouldn't wake up. My mind would, and I would be in sort of a hallucinative state where I felt like the thing that was threatening me in the dream was now in the room, but I couldn't move. And my wife actually would sleep really light so she could rock my body to, to wake me up. And then, you know, so these are some of the symptoms I had, right? But what it felt like on a day-to-day -day basis was, you know, that feeling where like something happens in the other room, like, I, you know, like your, your, your kid is playing in the other room and you hear a crash. And as you're running in there to see what happens, your mind is, re is playing all the possible terrible scenarios. And it turns out your kid's fine. Whatever fell, missed your kid, it's fine. But then your brain goes to this place of what could have happened and you yeah. imagine it for a moment and it's like uncontrollable dread. Mm -hmm. Well, PTSD is like having that feeling a lot of the time. And, mm -hmm. and for me, it was like feeling like when, you know, when something didn't happen, it wasn't that it didn't happen. It was that it barely didn't happen. And then I must've just barely prevented it. And I have to be vigilantly on guard all the time to prevent this bad thing from happening. I learned in therapy that that was because my mind learned in Afghanistan, given the job that I did, mm -hmm. if you didn't control the situation at all times, you might be killed. Yes. And so I was desperate for a sense of control all the time mm -hmm. in my life after Afghanistan and for therapy. The other way I sometimes describe it is it's like that feeling of anxiety that you have when you know there's like four tasks that you need to do and you haven't had a chance to write them down. And so you're trying to go about your day and not have the four tasks fall out of your head. Well, it's like that if you have this sinking, vague feeling that if you don't remember all four, you might get killed. Wow. You know, that, that's how it felt to me. Yeah. Did you go through survivor's guilt at all? Yeah, I had a lot of survivor's guilt um, and, and just, uh, just a, a real feeling of unworthiness and a feeling that I was pretty irredeemable because, you know, I had friends who I felt had done more. And here I was, you know, living this life where I was, flying high and, you know, becoming famous and being afforded all these great opportunities and experiences. But I had, you know, friends who had been hurt, friends who were still serving, friend, you know, and it, I just felt completely unworthy of the life that I was living. Mm -hmm. Kind of a, maybe some imposter's guilt. Yeah. Kind of and it, it made me dislike myself as a result. Yeah. Yeah. So how does it affect families? You talk in the book, your wife, Diana, I believe you talk about how she work with you and, and, and what's the impact to the families? And that's probably an important way for some people that might have it, that they haven't dealt with it, you know, might identify it. Yeah. It has a profound impact on families. One of the things that I did in the book is 
every chapter, there's a passage written in first person by my wife about her experience. And it's there for a couple of reasons. One is because I'm describing everything without the benefit of the vocabulary I learned in therapy, you're getting the viewpoint of somebody who had PTSD rather than me now. I mean, I still have it, but rather than me now, where I've been through therapy and I understand, you're getting it. I kind of re-entered my previous mindset to write it so that it could be more relatable for people who hadn't been through treatment. Well, the the shortcoming of that is that, you know, you want people to be able to get a full picture too. And so it was helpful to have a, a second narrator come in occasionally and say what they were observing and what mm-hmm. was actually happening. You know, my wife jokingly refers to some of her sections as rebuttals. I told her I was <laughs> but, but the other thing is, is that it does affect families profoundly and my wife ended up developing secondary PTSD, which is a thing we didn't even know existed before I went to therapy. Wow. And, and that is to say that even without the underlying trauma, even without going with me to Afghanistan, just by being around me all the time, you know, laying next to me when I had these violent nightmares and then hearing about them from me and, you know, while you're barely awake and having it seep in or, you know, having me constantly reinforcing all these security measures that we were taking you can end up developing a lot of the symptoms and behaviors of somebody with PTSD without the underlying trauma. Wow. So it was really important to us for her journey to get out there. And the other reason, a couple of reasons why, is my wife's also a New York Times bestselling author, so she's pretty good at this, so let's involve her. And, and then also, you know, when, you're, when you have a subject like this and you really want people to read it, you need some levity. It needs to be funny too. And there's a lot of jokes in the book. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of people have said that they cried, but they also laughed. And mm-hmm. several of those do come from my wife's perspective. So it, it makes the book a lot, like actually fun to read. That's good. I mean, I, I think it will help people, you know, understand that this is, you know, sometimes you're not alone in the journey. That's, I think, what a lot of people who turn to suicide and other things, they feel so alone in their mind and in their place and what they're experiencing. And they, you know, some of the most important things I've ever learned in storytelling and stuff is, is us being able to identify either through our own stories or other people's stories that, hey, we're not alone. Uh, yeah. There's other people experiencing this and, and, oh, they found a path through the darkness. And how did they do it? Oh, okay. There, there's a path there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we all help lead each other in and out of, um, some of these different things that we go through and experience in life. Let's touch on the vital work of your Veterans Community Project. Why don't we talk a little bit about that, if you would? Yeah, no, I appreciate you bringing it up. So I actually, Veterans Community Project, it started with, my involvement with it started with when I was running for mayor, I got a tour of the place because it's based here in Kansas City. And I remember feeling like it, it just knocked me out. It was like a cross between a Ford operating base in Afghanistan and a startup in Silicon Valley just like, like they had a baby or something. And, and then I, lo- I just loved it. And I went home that night to my wife and I was like, well, I wish I could quit everything I'm doing and just go work there. But it was like not a realistic notion at the time. But what they did that, that blew me away was there's a couple of things. One, they go after the suicide epidemic because they operate walk-in centers for any to walk in and basically get access to any service without the, you know, the bureaucratic road that you got to go down uh, the VA or any other service providers. Just, Hey, did you serve? Yes. Okay. You get hundred percent of our services. And we'll, we'll connect you to whatever you need. The second thing, and what they're much better known for, is the residential side, which is to say, going after veterans' homelessness. Um, mm-hmm. And that is through a, a village of tiny houses with wraparound case management services 
mm-hmm. transition veterans out of homelessness and then into permanent housing out in the community. And they do that with an, an enormous success rate that's unheard of in the industry. Wow. And, and so for me, when I decided to go to the VA, I was initially told that it was going to take some time for me to get enrolled in the system. I didn't feel like I had a lot of time. So I, like a lot of KC vets, I went to Veterans Community Project and I went to the outreach center, walked in. They handled my paperwork for me. And a week later, I had my first therapy appointment at the VA. Wow. Yeah. And so I was a big believer already, but now I was really a believer. And as I was going through therapy, I just started hanging around Veterans Community Project and they'd been so successful in Kansas City that they were getting invited to replicate their model in other communities around the country. And, and they were trying to figure out how to do that. And I had built a national organization before, so I was giving them some advice. And then I was doing really well at therapy and starting to think about what I might do with the rest of my life. And one of the co-founders was like, hey man, you know, you're not working and you, you're here. Like, why don't you just come on full time? So for the last three years, I've been the president of national expansion and uh, at VCP. And during that time, we have expanded our operations from Kansas City to also now in the Denver area, St. Louis area, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We just bought land in Oklahoma City. We're going to start building there. And then we have some other communities coming on soon after that. Yeah, that is awesome. That is right. really important. You know, when we were when we were young, we started our first company. It was a courier company. We used to do blood, urine, and, and body body stuff samples, I guess you call it. I don't know what the correct scientific term is. We used to deliver to different places. So we'd pick up at hospitals and take them to a blood lab, A-R-U-P, A-A-R-P, or A-R-U-P. I don't know. It's been, maybe I'm at the A-A-R-P stage. I'm 54. I'm finally losing it. A-R-U-P. And they were a blood testing lab or a body testing lab, I guess. And so we would pick up at the VA. It was always despondent when we go in there in the 90s. It was just, you just felt like you were hitting a morgue sometimes. And, you know, most of the times the the doctors would just be like, we're just waiting to get our degrees so we can get out of here and, and go to our own practice. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, one of my friends who's in the military, he had a friend who was having a psychological breakdown and he was going in and they were telling him, we, we can't find your records. <laughs> you know, he, he's got like his dog tags and all of his yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're telling him, we can't, we can't help you. We got to figure out where your records are. And you're like, <laughs> the guy's like starting to lose it. And so I'm glad there's stuff like this because we, we read about the epidemic of the, of, you know, the homelessness of, of vets and, and it, it just seems like, you know, the, these people, these folks go to a war to defend America, they defend our country. And they, as far as I'm concerned, they should have better health plans than our people in Congress. You know, they should be better taken care of. Well, yeah, a lot of the problem is that Congress has been so concerned with making sure that nobody who, quote unquote, doesn't deserve the benefits would get them. But mm-hmm. what that means is they're trying to figure out, well, which veterans deserve this and which don't. And I mean, most Americans agree that anybody who served in the military yeah. deserves these benefits. And yeah. that's not how they see it. They try and narrow it down to say, well, you have to serve for, for a certain period of time. You have to have gone to certain places. You have, you know, you have to have the right discharge status and all this. And it's like, no, you served in the military, you should yeah. have access to the VA. That's that's my opinion. I mean, when, when you choose to serve, number one, you're serving. And, and number two, you know, you're putting your life on your line. You know that if you get called up, you're going to go to a place yeah. and you're, you're putting your life on the line. So in some cases, just being a member of the military, you know, what was that terrorist base, base attack years ago where yeah. the guy went in and shot it up? I mean, 
you know, you, you can be targeted because you're in the military and, and bad stuff can happen to you. So I think it's really important. And I'm glad you're doing this sort of work. You talk in the book about modern masculinity and vulnerability. And I, you know, I mentioned earlier, a lot of men, we have that sort of man up sort of thing. We suck down our emotions and swallow them. And we just keep on trucking. Talk to me a little about what you touched on there in the book, if you would. Yeah. You know, I, what I tried to talk a lot about is that I just feel like I'm a far better father and husband and everything else I do because I went to get help. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think at the end of the day, what it's about is it's about recognizing that PTSD is an injury. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, if, if you broke your arm, you wouldn't be like, well, I'm not going to do anything about it because I know somebody who, who lost their arm. Right. Yeah. But what happens is, is that, you know, if we get an injury to our brain, like, you know, in terms of a memory that is traumatic and experience that is traumatic, we have a tendency to go, well, and I did this for a long time. Well, you know, I know somebody who had it worse. I know somebody who went through something worse. So who am I to go get this treated? And that's where sort of that, you know, that somewhat manliness sort of conversation comes in, I think. And, and I think this is true for women too. I think our culture pushes this a lot regardless but it's it's actually just a useless ranking because you can't rank your trauma out of existence. All you do, you don't diminish your trauma. You just diminish your your power to heal and you delay your opportunity to heal. So, you know, I'm somebody who in my prior work was a politician and think maybe one day I'll do that again. But I, and I recognize that people will probably take what I've written in this book and, you know, some rivals would say, well, this guy's not fit. And my attitude about that, just like my attitude about whether you're being a real man by going to get help is I would much rather be led by people who have dealt with their stuff because everybody's got stuff. You know, there's two types of people. There's people who got stuff and, and there's people who are pretending they don't got stuff. (laughs) So I just rather be, you know, work with the people who have dealt with it. Yeah. Cause you, you know, it's, it's about being clear, having clarity and being honest with yourself. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's kind of like alcoholism. The hardest step to do is admit you have a problem. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of men, you know, they bury this sort of stuff. You know, our feelings usually aren't welcome anywhere. And and so, you know, we just go man up, suck it up, whatever. You know, it's not mm-hmm. a big of a deal. And and sometimes just going, hey, maybe I should have this looked at is, is a good thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. So what, uh, any future political aspirations, anything you've got on the horizon that you're planning to do? I mean, I don't have any plans, which is the thing politicians always say when they have plans. But I actually, you know, for me, it's like I'm I'm enjoying my life and I wasn't before. And so that was one of the reasons I was really motivated to constantly be thinking about what I can do. And I feel like I'm still in public service. I, you know, I had the opportunity to, to make a big difference in people's lives through Veterans Community Project. That's really important to me. And at the same time, you know, I'm really enjoying my family. So if, you know, in the future, my kids are eight and two, they're about to be nine and or, eight and one, they're about to be nine and two. They both have September birthdays. And, you know, when they get older, it might be an adventure my wife and I want to undertake, but it might not. I don't know. I still feel like I'm in politics. You know, I serve on the board of Giffords and the board of Let America Vote. And, and I, I'm an activist. I just, it's not what I get paid to do. Anymore. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, you have the podcast too there. Yeah. As well. You guys talk I about politics. Pretty, there. pretty popular political podcast. So I have an opportunity to participate in the debate and to move the conversation. So yeah, I'm pretty happy with how things are. That's awesome, man. Well, I'm glad you're contributing and I'm glad you found your peace, man. Thank Finding you. your peace and, 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 you know, 
it, being able to live within the confines of your own mind. And if, if that's a peaceful place, then everyone around you is happy and peaceful. And I'm sure your kids will love it. And I'm sure your wife enjoys it. And you, know, you, you meet a whole different person. And so yeah. hopefully more people, if they hear this or read your book, will reach out and get some help. And, you know, it doesn't hurt. Like people have asked me, what would you do if you could go back and talk to your 16 or teenage self again? Be like, go to therapy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right on. <laughs> My great uncle told me that therapy is just about getting a master's degree in yourself. I like that. Yeah, it's right on. That should be a meme or something. That should, yeah, that, that's brilliant. You know, it's, it's, it's sad that sometimes we go through life and I, I, maybe this is just part of the journey we have to go on, but you, you don't learn about, yourself as much until you've you've left enough trauma behind you you know and you look back and you go hey, everything has been on fire for the last two yeah 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 maybe it was me yeah you know yeah that's the big twist that's the big game night show on twist that it was actually you yeah it's actually yeah, I, see, I see i see and destruction anyway it's been more fun with the show thank you for coming on we really appreciate it thank you thank you and give us your dot coms if you would one more time before we go okay. so i'm Ed, you can find me at jasoncander.com and then I'm on Instagram and Twitter at jasoncander. The book, you can you can buy the book in a way that supports independent bookstores by going to invisiblestormbook.com or, you know, you can get the book wherever you get books. There you go, guys. Order up the book if you would, please. Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD, available July 5th, 2022. Get it wherever fine books are sold. Remember, stay out of those alleyway bookstores. They're dangerous. You might you might get a nail or a tetanus shot or something. Anyway, guys, thanks for tuning in. Be sure you go to YouTube.com for Chess Chris Foss to see all of our groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all those crazy kids are playing. Goodreads.com for Chess Chris Foss as well. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe. And we'll see you guys next time.